morning. Try it again. Good morning. Hey, there they are. Glad to have you here this morning. And uh, as Dan said earlier, happy Mother's Day. Moms, we're thankful for you. Uh, We want to celebrate you this morning, but also uh, women in general, because not everybody who desires to be a mom can be a mom. And uh, that's by God's sovereignty, and we can't control that. But at the same time, he is still good. He still is in control, and he still made you, and we love you. So as you leave this morning, all the ladies, you're welcome to come grab a flower. And uh, there's some on either side of the stage you can take. If you Sometimes I know on Mother's Day, if you stick around long enough, you get more than one flower. <laughs> little, little tip for you today, pro tip. But uh, with that, let me pray. And then we're going to launch right into the text this morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 is where we're going to start. So you can turn there while I'll pr- I pray, and then uh, we'll get rolling. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for your grace to us through him. Uh, I thank you, Father, that uh, it's because of his grace, as we'll see this morning, that uh, one, we can rejoice, and two, that we can uh, live lives that are worthy of the gospel, that we don't have to, to achieve that, that we don't have to live lives worthy so that you love us, but we live those lives because you love us. Teach us that in a powerful way this morning. Remind us of it, those of us who know it. And let it be freeing for those who who have yet to discover it. Father, I pray too uh, that you would uh, send your spirit to fill me and work through me and in me. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you teach me even as I teach and speak speak to me even as I speak. Let my words be your own. I pray also against the enemy. Uh, he He would take your word and twist it and accuse us and tempt us. He would love to steal our joy and rob us of of knowing who you designed us to be. So instead, uh, might you work in a powerful way to change hearts, to encourage hearts, whatever the the need is in each one, Father, you know. And so we pray all this then through our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Ephesians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 this morning. I'm just going to read through the text this morning as we get going. We're going to start in verse 27. Paul writes this. And by the way, remember, where's Paul writing from? He's writing from prison. He had been arrested for what? For for spreading the gospel, for for telling people about Jesus, for planting churches. Uh, He had been falsely accused of starting a riot, of all kinds of other things. And and he's thrown in prison. He's been waiting to be on trial for years. He's been through a shipwreck. He's been bitten by a snake. He's, He's appeared before multiple different authorities. And he's finally waiting to appear before Caesar when he writes this to the church in the city of Philippi, hence the name Philippians. He writes this then towards the end of the first chapter. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you, in other words, whether I get out of prison or I'm absent or I don't, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Paul starts off writing and he starts off, he says, uh, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You know what that reminds me of? 
It reminds me just for a second here of, of when I was young. And, and he's kind of getting their attention. You know, you ever, you ever, when you're young or maybe students, some of you, you live at home and you ask if you could go do something. And your mom's like, oh yeah, totally. It's Mother's Day, right? Your mom says, oh yeah, totally. You can go do that. And as you're getting ready to go, all right, only clean your room first. Yeah, you can go play baseball. Only do the dishes. It's like you, you thought you were free to go. You're not free. You got something you got to do first, right? Moms, you ever pulled that prank? Right? Or not really prank, but you, you've done that, right? You said, only, only this first, then you can go. That's kind of what Paul's saying here. It, it points us to what he had just said the week before. Remember? Previously, he said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He, he said, I, I don't know if I should go and be with Christ. That'd be far better, but it's much better for you that I stay. And he, he goes on, he says, so I'm going to stay for your joy and your progress in the faith. And they had to think, excuse me, they had to think, great, he's staying. And then he goes, only, only one thing, one thing you've got to do now. See, Paul had talked over and over and over about his suffering and about the things that he had been through. And now he gets to some instruction for the church in Philippi. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life. Some of your translations, I think the New Living Translation translates it actually the best. The New Living Translation says this, you must live as citizens of heaven. Because really what happens is, is in the New Living, or the ESV, those six words, let your manner of life be, is actually just one word in Greek. It's polytuste. And it's the word we get, it's actually rooted in polis, from which we get uh, metropolitan. It means city, polis does, or police, or politics. All of that's rooted in this word. And, and there's this idea of not just a manner of life, but a manner of citizenship. And that's probably a better translation of what he's saying here. Not just let your manner of life be, but live like citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live like citizens. And it's curious, later in the same book, Paul says, you're not citizens of this earth, but citizens of heaven. You're here visiting. Your real home is in heaven. And when Paul says this, let your manner of life, he's saying behave as citizens, live the life of a citizen, live as a member of a community. Well, how does he say to do that? What community? Well, one, live as a citizen who's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who's worthy of the gospel. Now there's two ways to understand that phrase, to live worthy of the gospel. You have two options in front of you. The first one is this. The first option you have when Paul says, and he tells the Philippians and he tells us through the Holy Spirit to live worthy of the gospel is, the question that comes up by the way is how do I become worthy of the gospel? How, how do I be worthy? Well, here's the two options. Number one is I achieve my worthiness before God. I achieve my worthiness. I do enough good. I live a perfect life. I, I, uh, I help enough old ladies cross the street. I, 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 I mow my neighbor's yard. I, I'm kind uh, to my children. I'm kind to my spouse. I'm kind to my siblings. I, I'm respectful of authority. I I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't cheat when I play wiffle ball. I, I, 
all the time I'm doing everything right and I achieve my worthiness by my actions and by my activity, I achieve it. That's option one. Option two, I receive my worthiness from God. Option one is I achieve my worthiness before God. I'm doing it. God, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. I hope you think I'm worthy. I, I, I hope this was good enough. I, the other option is God says here, let me give you your worthiness and I receive it from him. And the way I receive it, by the way, is not by anything I do, but simply by what Jesus has done on the cross for me. That I can't do enough good things to be worthy of the gospel. I can't do enough good things to be worthy of God. However, Jesus Christ did. Jesus did. Jesus made me worthy by his blood on the cross shed for me. By his blood on the cross shed for you, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted him. And so my two options of how do I become worthy, it's either I work really hard. We, we sing that song, Grace Alone, right? I worked my fingers down to the bone. Nothing I did could ever atone. But Father, you paid my debt. That's, I receive it. The Father pays it for me through his son. And I can receive it from God. So there's your options. It's either I do it on my own or I trust Jesus. Now, option one. Option one, you just need to know this is a lie. Option one's a lie. In fact, it's the lie. It's the lie of every other religion on the face of the earth. That if you do enough good, God will love you. If you do enough right things, if you keep enough rules, then you'll be right and worthy before God. Every other religion, bar none, follows that pattern. However, the gospel... Option number two, this is the truth, that I can never do anything good enough before God. Romans, Paul writes in Romans in another letter to another church, he says that that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that I cannot do enough to be worthy before God. I always fall short. So I receive my worthiness from God. That's the truth. That Jesus Christ, see, the the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And he says later in Ephesians, he says, and and that's a free gift. It's, It's not anything that you've done so that you can't boast about it. It's not what you achieved. It's what you received. It's a gift. That's the truth. Option one is religion. Option one is religion. It's It's, I do this, I I keep the rules, I I stay in line, I don't mess up. That's religion. That's religion. Option two is the truth, and it's the gospel. Religion sounds like bad news, doesn't it? If I screw up, I'm toast. You know what the, the gospel is? Gospel means good news. The good news is, Jesus did that for me. Jesus did it for me. I can't do it. He did it for me. Option one, this means I have to live rightly. I'm just, I'm hitting this in a bunch of different ways. So you make sure you get it. That, That I live rightly to become worthy. I earn my worthiness. Option two, and here's where Paul's saying he wants you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. The, the reason I live in such a manner is because I am worthy. Because I am worthy, because Jesus has made me worthy. That's why I live a life worthy of the gospel. 
I live from who Jesus has made me to be, not toward who everyone else would say I have to be. See, option one, here's the crux of it. This totally depends on who? Me. It's all on me. It's all on me. I've got to earn it. I've got to achieve it. I've got to get it right. Option two, to receive worthiness, it all depends on Jesus. It's all on him. All of it. And so now I live a worthy life because he, he, he bore the burden for me. That's why his yoke is easy. A yoke, you, you partner up two cattle, right? And it pulls the cart. Well, Jesus' yoke, he's got it. He's got the whole thing. You're just kind of walking alongside him. Giving you his righteousness. Giving you his worthiness. So you, you have to have that down if you're going to understand where Paul's going this morning. You got to understand that if you're a Christian, you receive your worthiness from God and you live from that. And, and if you try to reverse the, the, the ticket and you, you try to earn your worthiness all the time, you're going to live an incredibly tired life and an incredibly defeated life. Because the truth is you can't do it apart from Jesus Christ working in you by the power of his Holy Spirit. You might say, I've heard you say this before, Josh. You're right. <laughs> I say it a lot. Because I I think it's at the core of what it means to live the Christian life is to understand your identity. And what it means then to be worthy of the gospel, it it means living out your gospel identity. Living out, or you could say it, your identity in Christ. To be worthy of the gospel is, is not earning my worthiness, but it's living out my worthiness. Do you see the difference? Paul isn't saying, hey, do a little more, work a little harder, throw some dirt on it, figure it out, toughen up. He's saying, no, live a life worthy of the gospel because you're citizens of heaven. That's why I camped out on that citizen piece. That's why that's so important. You're citizens of heaven. That's who you are. Now live like it. Live a life worthy of being a citizen. You didn't earn, how many of you, the very few in here, there's probably a handful, but most of us, I mean, my experience anyway, I I didn't earn my citizenship as part of this country. I I was just born and it was just given to me. Now there's others who have gone through, maybe you've gone through the process and you've earned your citizenship. Well, citizenship from heaven is earned by Jesus Christ. You do nothing. It's just given to you like somebody who's a natural born citizen. So let's go on and look at what, it, what happens then when we live out our gospel identity. See, he says in verse 27, if you're following along, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that, so that whether I come and see you, Paul says, or, or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel. Here's number one. The, the first thing I recognize of four things here as we go through the text this morning. First is that when I live out my gospel identity, it yields unity in the church. It results in unity in the church. Living out my gospel identity results in unity in the church. L- look at the way Paul says that. He says, whether I come and see you, whether I'm absent, that I would hear of you. 
Well, what did he want to hear? Your translation might even add in some of the other language there where it says, I would hear the things concerning you. Well, what things? Well, here's some of the things Paul says. He says, one, that, that you're standing firm in one spirit, that you're standing firm, not only in one spirit, but with one mind, striving, how? Pulling different directions? What's he say? No, side by side. It's a picture of unity. It's a picture of unity. And Paul sees unity rooted firmly in the gospel of Jesus Christ because he says, you know, standing firm with one mind, striving side by side. Why? For the faith of the gospel. For the faith of the gospel. That's what it's rooted in. That's what everybody's pulling for. That's what everybody's going the same direction for. That unity is rooted in Jesus Christ. And the only way we have unity as a church, loved ones, is to the extent that each of us are living out our gospel identity because we recognize then what? It's not about me, but it's about Jesus Christ and we can be unified on Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings unity. In fact, sometimes the church is called a community, right? You know what the church, the word community means? Common unity. Well, what's our common unity? What are we striving for? What are we standing firm for? What are we working side by side for? For the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who brings unity. Now, the the problem is that sometimes when we hear unity, sometimes we think uniformity. And sometimes in some churches, a pastor will preach not unity, but uniformity. Everybody get in line. Everybody look like this. Everybody dress like this. Everybody talk like this. Everybody sing like this. Everybody live like this. Everybody give like this. Uniformity is when I make everybody match my desire. Get in line. Here's how we do it. It's got to be just like this. We all look the same, talk the same, dress the same. That's not unity. Unity is is when we're, we're rooted and rallying around the same cause and it it allows for diversity among the body so that my shape is different than Mike's shape and Mike's shape is different uh, than Glenn's shape and and it goes on and on around, right? That, That unity is about Jesus. Uniformity is about my preference. Don't get it confused. When you're in your 110 group, don't get distracted. Don't get distracted with complaining about certain things that are your preference and have nothing to do with the gospel. Don't don't get distracted in your home around the dinner table complaining about something about the church when really what it is, it's an issue. You you don't like it because it's not uniform to the way you would have it. Everybody's not wearing the same uniform the way you would wear it. We're talking about unity. It's rooted and founded around Jesus Christ. We have to allow for diversity. We have to allow for other people's opinions and differences. You know what's really unique about our church? Our church is really unique in a lot of ways. And one of the biggest ways is in the, the, the span of generations in our church. There aren't a lot of churches that have, I mean, there's like, there's like 60 kids down at that end of the building right now, grade five and down, right? And, and a handful of adults caring for them and teaching them. 
And then there's a whole, whole set of people who are young adults out of, just out of college or with young kids. And then there's a whole set of, a whole generation of people in our church who, who have kids in our church and maybe even grandkids in our church. And then there's another whole generation of people who, who, who have all kinds of experience and wisdom because of their, their decades of walking with God. And we have these multiple generations in our church. But you know what else we have? We have multiple cultures in our church. Because in this camp, in this older camp, you, you've got a totally different culture than these kids with these little gizmos that they're always tapping on and drawing on and making noise. It's not just a different generation. It's a different culture. I'm telling you. And, and we not just only have multiple generations, but multiple cultures in our church. So it's important for us to get our minds around this fact that our unity isn't based in everything looking the way I think it ought to look. But our unity is based and rooted in Jesus Christ being exalted. Amen? We preach Jesus. Because Paul says that's of first importance. And, and when I live out my gospel identity, it points others to Jesus. And it brings unity in the church. See, here's what's interesting as he writes this, when he talks about standing firm with one mind, striving side by side. It's both defensive and it's offensive, isn't it? He's standing firm. He's digging in. He's not going anywhere. But he's also striving to go forward. You know, I don't think a church can be healthy if you're only doing one of those two things. If you're just digging in and standing firm and then we're not moving, we're standing right here. Okay, well, what ground are you taking for the kingdom? Right? What ground are you taking for the kingdom? You're camping out until you die. <laughs> what good is that? We got to reach people with the gospel. The other side of that, the flip side is, boy, we're taking all kinds of ground. And in doing so, we're not really standing firm on what we believe. We're just going to make sure we get a lot of people. We're going to change what we think and change what we believe and change what the Bible teaches. And it's both. It's standing firm on God's word, but it's also moving forward, advancing the gospel. And by God's grace, that's what we aim to be. Amen. And that's what Paul talks about. And he's encouraging them. He says, I'll, I'll stick around. I won't go and be with Jesus. Only live a life worthy of the gospel so that there'd be unity in the church, that you'd stand firm, one spirit, one mind, side by side. The second thing I see is not only that it would bring unity, but living out my gospel identity, it encourages other believers. It encourages other believers. Because look what he says in verse 28. He says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. To encourage means to bring courage to somebody. To bring them courage. To help them through. To help them when they don't want to. He says, don't be frightened. And in, in, in what? In anything. It, it reminds me of, of, of God's words to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Jesus repeats the same things in his great commission. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. When we live out our gospel identity, we're, we're, we're reflecting Jesus. We're imaging Jesus to one another. And we're reminded of the fact that he's with us always. 
that, that it encourages us to live a life worthy of the gospel so that you wouldn't be frightened in anything, that you wouldn't be frightened in anything by your opponents. Mom, have any opponents running around the house? Do you? I, I think this applies to you too, even in terms of your home. See, the truth is that, that, the, that the family is really just a microcosm of the church, God's family. And the way it's lived out in your home is similar to how we ought to live it out together. So, so mom, when you're living out your gospel identity, one, it brings unity to the home, unity with your spouse, unity with your kids. It also encourages those in your home who've trusted Jesus. And it encourages you so that you wouldn't be frightened in anything, even by your opponents. But that instead you would stand firm, side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel, to, to plant the seed of the gospel in their life. Of course, Paul's writing not just about our home, but he's talking about the church. And he says, living out my, your gospel identity will encourage other believers that you wouldn't be frightened, that you wouldn't be intimidated. You know, we, we live in an, an area of the world and in a time in history where uh, intimidation for us is a lot different than it is if you go halfway around the world, isn't it? Intimidation for us is, I don't want people to think I'm weird. <laughs> you know, I don't want to open my mouth because what will, what will they think? Or what will they say? Or will I lose my job? Or... Yet the truth remains that as we live out our gospel identity, we can encourage one another in that. Isn't that true? That while maybe we don't yet face the same persecution as the believers do on the other side of the earth... That, that as, as we live out who we are in Jesus, it encourages one another. And as you see your coworker share their faith, as you see your coworker make decisions that are honoring to Jesus, it encourages you to do the same, doesn't it? It empowers you to do the same. As you see your friend at school speak out, it, it empowers you to do the same thing. And we encourage one another, we give courage to one another as we live out our gospel identity standing side by side to advance the gospel, that we wouldn't be frightened in anything by our opponents. And Paul goes on, he says, in fact, this is a clear sign to them, to your opponents, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The third thing is when I live out my gospel identity, it's also a sign to unbelievers. It encourages believers, but it's a sign to unbelievers. We talked about it last week that our lives would, would magnify, would honor Jesus. And it, or maybe it was a couple weeks ago, it would be like a telescope versus a microscope, right? That, that a telescope, when it magnifies something, it looks off into the distance at something that appears small and appears faint. And you look through the telescope and you can see it for what it really is. When people look at your life, do you honor, do you magnify Jesus Christ in such a way that they look through the telescope and they see Jesus for who he really is? Because as you do that, it encourages believers. That's living out your identity in Christ. And it also is a sign to unbelievers. It's a sign to them that, boy, this Jesus is real. That this Jesus really is who these people say that he is. And the Holy Spirit begins to work through that and through the power of his word and your witness to where maybe they would trust Jesus or, sadly, maybe they would reject him. 
In which case, Paul says, this is a sure sign of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. I'm reminded of a story that's been in the news a lot the last two, three, four months, a little longer than that even, but especially this event on in February, 2015, this year in Cairo, Egypt. You probably saw this image maybe on the news of Christians, our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world facing their opponents and being led to their slaughter because of their faith in Jesus. What's amazing is if you really read between the lines and you start to look at some of the eyewitness accounts of what happened that day, you learn more than you would maybe just listening to the news on the radio, depending where you're listening. And what we don't hear, there was an example, a man by the name of Sammy, who's a a worker in Cairo, Egypt, and a believer. He works for a Christian organization. He shared this. He said, these young Christians who were executed were in their mid-20s. They went to Libya in search of work to help feed their families living under the poverty line in Egypt. In the days and weeks leading up to their deaths, their ISIS captors tortured them and attempted to persuade them to deny Jesus in return for their lives. They were there to provide for their family. They're working in Libya. They're trying to care for their family back home be good dads, be good providers. They have a chance to live and continue doing that if they would just deny Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of them, this passage we read this morning, the Holy Spirit brought to their mind. So that whether I'm with you or whether I'm absent, I may hear of you standing firm in the faith, in one faith with with one mind, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. Sammy goes on to report, he says, they all refused to deny Jesus Christ. They all stood firm. They all died also on that beach, singing songs to Jesus. You may not have heard that report, did you? That they were singing to Jesus in the midst and in in before their captors, before their opponents. In fact, uh, one of the things that says they cried in unison was, Ya Rabbi Yasu, oh my Lord Jesus. Instead, they became courageous. They stood firm. They strived. They fought. They contended for the gospel. And I guarantee you that God's word proved true that that's a clear sign to their opponents ultimately, unless they trust Jesus of their destruction. And it's a clear sign to me that apart from Jesus, I face destruction. I face eternity in hell. To all of us, trust Jesus. As, a, as an aside to this, this whole, the whole ISIS thing, you know what you need to be praying for? What's curious is the guy who wrote this letter could have been considered the ISIS of his day. Previously, when his name was Saul, he was a persecutor of Christians. He he witnessed Christians be stoned to death for their faith because they wouldn't deny their faith in Jesus Christ. You know what you need to pray for as a church? Church, not just our church, but the church. We need to pray that God would do the same thing again. That, That maybe in that camp, he would raise up another Saul, another Paul who would see the light, who would 
turn into a huge, great ambassador for the faith of Jesus Christ, even amidst that horror. He's done it before. He can do it again. And I think we ought to pray for that. But we can be encouraged again by our brothers and sisters who, who lived a life worthy of the gospel. They, they stood firm in one spirit with one mind. They strived side by side. There was unity. There was encouragement to us. There was a sign to unbelievers. And then fourth, I must remind myself often as I'm living out my gospel identity, as I'm trying to live a life worthy of the gospel, that my gospel identity is received and not achieved. You gotta remember, it's not on me, but it's on Jesus. You've gotta remember, it's not on you getting it all right. It's on Jesus who got it all right for you. Here's what Paul says, starting in verse 29. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Yeah, and I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, yeah, I, I know that my belief, you know, my trust in Jesus, that's a gift of his to me. That I wouldn't believe apart from the Holy Spirit working in my heart ahead of time and, and changing my heart and, and making me new. And he gives me the gift of faith that has been granted to me to believe. That word granted is also like rejoice. It's rooted in grace. Charismai is the name. And it's actually usually used for forgiveness. That it's just been given to me like this formal invitation. It's given to you that you would believe. That's easy for me to, to take, isn't it? But how about the second part? It's been granted to me. It's been graced to me that I would suffer for his sake. That one's hard to take, isn't it? That one's, that, that one's rough. Yet Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. In other places, Paul writes in Colossians, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, for the church. He says later in this very letter, I know that I know him in the power of his resurrection, that I might share in his sufferings, become more like him, even in his death. You know what I think maybe one of my bigger tasks is as a pastor, moving into the next decade, two decades as a pastor, is preparing the church and myself to suffer. It's not all roses and lollipops following Jesus. It's hard. And yet it's a grace because I get to share with Jesus. I get to suffer for his sake. Notice it's not because of Jesus that I suffer. It's not in place of Jesus that I suffer. It, it's for his sake, for his cause, for advancing the gospel, to stand firm, to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel that I would suffer. And I think it's coming soon. I've told you that before, but I really do. That it's going to be harder and harder to follow Jesus. I think it's harder today. Many of you, you could attest to that in your school, in your workplace today than it was a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. It won't get easier. The only way you make it is to remind yourself often of your worthiness before God 
that you receive it from Jesus Christ, that he would give you the words when you need him to speak, that, that he is your source, he's your identity, not this place. This place is a dump compared to what we have for eternity with him. Amen? Paul says, not only that you believe, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict or the same battle that you saw I had and that you now see I still have. With that, as we wrap up, let me just remind you again. If you haven't trusted Jesus, I implore you to trust him. Turn to him in faith, to become a Christian, to, to, to receive from him a new identity. In fact, that's what the Bible says, that, that all who have trusted him are new creations. And, and as you receive that new identity, he makes you clean. He makes you new. He begins to work on your life in such a way that more and more you image and model and reflect Jesus Christ. And you live out that new identity in such a way that it brings unity to the church, encourages other believers, is a sign to those who need to know him. And let us remind one another often to look at Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. And uh, thank you for uh, your grace to us through him. Father, the passage this morning was written by a guy who's suffering. And uh, it's a sobering one because it reminds us that as followers of Jesus, we shouldn't expect anything less. We thank you for your grace to us to, uh, to live and to function in a land where uh, for all of our lives, we've been free. We've been uh, free to, to preach the gospel, free to share the gospel, free to live lives honoring to Jesus. Yet that hasn't been the norm throughout history. And we have an enemy and he's very real and he's very powerful and he would desire nothing more than to see us suffer and to see us uh, turn and not stand firm and not strive and not move forward with the gospel in the face of opposition. Instead, Holy Spirit, might you work in us in such a way that we would know firmly who we are, that we are worthy of the gospel because of Jesus and then that we would live it out. I pray for those who've never trusted you that even today, uh, Spirit, you'd be working in their life. You'd be planting the seed of, their, of the gospel in their hearts and that they might, even today, turn to you in faith. We love you. Thanks that you loved us first. We pray all this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.